You're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. We couldn't have picked a nicer day for the third of our series of rewilding pods, could we? I mean, unlike at Ebeno Common when it was pouring down with rain, here we are sitting under a fig tree in the blazing sunshine at the Nepa State in West Sussex. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's, uh, and even though early this morning when we arrived there was a little bit of a chill in the air, uh, but uh, it's definitely it's the, the summer is still sort of hanging on in there. Maybe uh, you know, a few autumn colours. Yeah, and in the background we can hear people uh, clearing away from the yurts. They have yoga yurts here and wild camping and shepherd's huts. But in a moment or two we're going to be joined by Tom Ford, who's a, um, one of the safari guides. And he's going to take us on a bit of a walk across this enormous estate and just show, show us what rewilding means here in Sussex. A slightly different approach to rewilding from, from that at Ebeno Common. Yeah, and I, I, I'm excited to see what sort of animals they've got here. I mean... Uh... We saw the, the, the British whites, didn't we, at, at Ebeno, and I think it'd be interesting to see the sort of the, the larger herbivores that they've got here, but also some of the uh, some of the smaller smaller creatures, some of the maybe some of the bugs and bunnies, or uh, certainly some bugs anyway. And that'd be great yeah. to see. Certainly some insects and lots of birds, I suspect. And a bit later on in the program, we'll be talking to Isabella Tree, who, along with Charlie Burrell, her husband, um, runs NEP. It's their family home and um, has been in their family for many years. And they were the inspiration and the guiding light between uh, taking this, what was, failing farm and turning it into this haven of wildlife and nature. That would be great. And did you bring the coffee this time? Or? No, I didn't. Oh, OK. Oh, well. Sorry about that. Next time, maybe. So, Tom, we've walked from the main car park um, yeah. and we've come across some amazing landscape to, to climb up onto this tree platform. And we're right in the, the kind of southern end of the southern block of NEP, you were just saying. And, and if we look out um, from the platform, what kind of things can we see here? Well, I think the thing that is quite exciting and almost is where the, the whole idea of a safari came out of is that we're looking at a landscape that is now working its way towards a wood pasture system so areas of uh, open areas that are grazed by the big herbivores are here that are here like the the red deer the fallow deer the long long horn cows um, which are keeping the areas you know areas open but then you've also got scrub encroaching from the hedgerows you've got um, baby oak trees popping up uh, uh, inside clumps of bramble shielded by the the thorny the thorny tangle of, of bramble stems to make uh to make a, a safe place for the oak to, to come up without the pressures of the deer trying to nibble it back which is what's going you know what's th- that tension between the wildlife and the and the vegetation coming back we're looking out at scrub and and yeah. obviously we look, these are in effect if, if if listeners don't know what scrub looks like yeah. they're kind of clumps of um clumps what, of, uh, of what i would of call bramble bramble I can yeah see blackberries of, and i can see hawthorns and i can yeah. see sloes yeah. but there's also other dog other, rose dog rose yeah, yeah. sallows um, why are those important and what is it that, that's nesting in there or feeding there that you wouldn't get when you've stripped back your landscape, grown a lot of wheat and put in a tiny token hedge? 
Yeah, well, at this time of year, those that, that, that scrubby vegetation is incredibly important for a whole host of wildlife because it's full, laden with seeds and nuts and berries that are, either our uh, resident species are using to stock up on their fat reserves for the winter, but also there's a whole host of migratory species, particularly warblers at this time of year, that will be passing through here and feeding on the elderberries and feeding on the blackberries to build up their fat reserves to give them enough energy to cross the channel to into Europe or to make non-stop flights to sub-Saharan Africa, depending on the species. So, okay, so that's a sort of feeding station. But you, yeah. were, you were also saying that there might be nightingales that are, that, 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 and turtle doves and things that yeah. we would perhaps a long time ago, you know, two, three generations back, would be commonplace but are now not so commonplace in the British landscape. Yep. Well, the nightingales have gone. They're all back in, uh, on their way back or back in Africa already and the, cuck- and the cuckoos. Maybe the last couple of turtle doves just hanging on. But those species are, you know, have experienced dramatic uh, cataclysmic declines in the UK, partly uh, as a response to how we manage our landscapes very intensively. Um, but here, where you have this surge of, of uh, scrubby um, vegetation regenerating, it, there are ideal habitats within that that these species come back for and are, you know, during the breeding season, show to be bucking, bucking the trend of what's going on in the wider landscape. So the, the hedgerows that are not flailed back at this time of year like they are on, uh, on many uh, uh, intensive uh, traditional farms, um, that's the, the, the edges of those create ideal uh, nesting habitat for nightingales in springtime when they arrive back in, in April and May. Uh, then they can also forage in safety in the dense, those dense thickets um, without the risk of being taken by a sparrowhawk, for example because um, you haven't got any apex predators as we would understand it in terms of mammals but you have got quite a lot of apex bird predators so you've got red kites and yeah, buzzards, and buzzards. Uh, sparrowhawks, kestrels and also one of the few tree nesting uh, peregrine pairs uh, in Sussex um, which is uh, nesting I think it's in the middle or the northern block not in the southern block but they will hunt over here during, uh, during the winter months certainly Fantastic, how exciting. Now, what we have just seen is something that we probably wouldn't expect to see in the middle of the Sussex landscape, and that's storks. Tell us about the storks. <laughs> I hope I get this story right. But yeah, the storks is part of a, a, a reintroduction programme that's taking place here on a, and on a couple of other sites uh, in Kent and Surrey. Um, and with the idea that they become a, uh, uh, a self, they, they, they become a self-sustaining population uh, and a bird that becomes part of our landscape again. For the moment, they're meant to be inside uh, their pens while they reach maturity, uh, uh, and when they then will want to start to breed. Um, but as we've seen, a few of them have already managed to uh, grow their their wing their flight feathers back before the, uh, before they were. Had, were trimmed uh, and have jumped out of their enclosures and and are now already free flying and uh, to see on a bright sunny day like this you know seven or eight white storks um, picking up thermals above this three and a half thousand acre estate is quite 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 special to yeah Yeah, it's truly magical seeing them flying above us i mean they're they're kind of big untidy lollopy type birds but up there but up there in the thermals they were really stunning i mean exactly and they're now sharing that airspace with uh with a buzzard i can just hear calling there or a sparrowhawk uh riding on the same thermals and that's something that um i can see it over there yes yeah yeah. um fantastic uh, will become part of our, our our skyscape again Tell us a bit about the mammals. I mean, as we were walking across here, we were lucky to see 
some of my favourite animals, pigs. We saw some beautiful tamworths that were just yeah. heading off in the other direction. So sadly, we didn't get a picture of the tamworths because they were making for the acorns. But we also saw some cattle. Tell us a little about the cattle. Yeah, so the longhorns were uh, uh, brought into the farm because they are a, a, an old breed, a very hardy breed, a very docile breed, um, and very well equipped to uh, switch their diet through the season according to what's available so there's no need for them to receive any supplementary feeding um, whatever time of year um, and when 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 the grass growth uh, uh, d- drops down during the winter months then they, they're happy to browse on the stems of uh, the sallows and the willows and other more scrubby one would think unpalatable uh, types of vegetation they're happy they're happy to uh, eat that to sustain a really good body condition throughout the year so they're self-sustaining they're not being fed with extra supplements or no. extra hay, anything they're actually just no. keeping the they're keeping there's themselves enough going um, but presumably that's because they the numbers of them are relatively small yeah the, it, exactly so it's called an extensive uh, uh system which means that it's very low density um uh, uh but it means that there's also no need for external inputs whether it's um you know silage or hay or um, you know, or, or some of these more um, nutritious uh, food supplements that can be provided to the cows. Um, yeah. When we were at Ebono, I mean, listeners may have heard the podcast we did at, at the Ebono Common. We had some big British whites there, and, and and they were fulfilling the function of actually just kind of keeping keeping the landscape managed in terms of of you know taking away you know saplings that shouldn't have been there and actually just treading down ground what, what are the longhorns doing for you are they doing something similar are they trying to keep the the balance between the scrub and the non-scrub or are they here for a different purpose exactly that well if you if you in in the absence of uh, any of these uh, large uh, herbivores whether it's the red deer the fallow deer the exmoor ponies uh, uh, the, the longhorn cows uh, this would all tend in, in a relatively short time towards uh, mature broadleaf woodland um, and and that would then mean that you would have very little in the way of open areas which are also fantastic places uh, for wildlife and important places as well so there you've got that, that wrestle between the, herb, the, the, the sort of grazing and the browsing mouth parts of these large herbivores which are essentially proxies for megafauna that used to live here before, before humans and um, and, uh, and and the, and the, and the kind of resurgent vegetation. So instead of it he- heading all towards uh, mature broadleaf woodland, it's going to head towards a uh, wood pasture system, which is uh, groves of trees, open glades, open areas that may be more um, preferentially grazed by the animals, um, and then and a much more dynamic, much more diverse. Uh, um, you know, suite of habitats, or yeah, yeah and that's fantastically habitats. important for smaller mammals and insects and yeah. and you know the, the ground dwelling creatures. That so we need that balance between some trees and some scrub and some open land, don't we? To exactly get the, that. to get yeah. the balance across the estate. Yeah. Well, we're going to head out from here and hopefully maybe get up and up close and personal with the storks. Yeah. And if I'm really lucky, we might spot the tail end of a pig as well. You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Akil Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. I'm delighted to be joined today by Isabella Tree who is um, owner and, can I say, custodian of the Nepp estate here in West Sussex. And 
Many um, pod listeners will be familiar with NEP because it is the foremost example of rewilding in in the UK um, and, you know, easily accessible and very close to home. Um, Isabella, it's a wonderful place and we've been very lucky. We've just been out on safari with one of your, um, your safari wardens. But can you perhaps take us right back to the beginning? I mean, how did you get here? Why did you start and how did you start? Well, we started in about 1999, uh, really because farming for us um, had become a complete um, millstone. We inherited NEP, it's three and a half thousand acres, from Charlie's grandparents in the 1980s. And it was already a failing farm. It was intensive arable and dairy. And we assumed with the sort of innocence of youth, uh, maybe the arrogance of youth, that we could turn it around. Uh, We thought that his grandparents had just not been investing in infrastructure. They didn't know the latest technology. We thought we could pull this farm around and make a profit and make it a goable, you know, a a viable enterprise again. Um, 17 years later, that wasn't the case, even though we'd done absolutely everything we could. We'd thrown more pesticides, more fertiliser, more herbicides at the land. We'd brought in different varieties of crops. We brought in new varieties of um, cattle, so bigger dairy producers, amalgamated dairies, we invested in infrastructure, roads, slurry tanks, you name it. Um, And all the time we were really fighting against this very heavy clay, the Sussex Weald. Um, If anyone um, isn't aware of the Sussex Weald, has never been walking across it on a wet day. I mean, in a winter that we've just had, a very wet winter, it is like unfathomable porridge. And when you walk across it in a summer, like the summer we've just had, it's just as hard as concrete. Um, so very unforgiving, very, very unforgiving, and, and really not cut out for modern intensive farming methods. So it took us 17 years to realise that. By then our overdraft was, I think, one and a half million. It was a complete, a complete catastrophe. So we decided we had to sell the farm. We sold, well, we, we, the land, selling the land was not um, an issue for us because it's been in my husband's family for over 230 years. They've been farming in this area for 500 years. So selling the estate was not a, 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 an option, but we felt we really wanted to do something with the land rather than fighting against it all the time. So once we'd cleared our debts, we began to, by selling the farm and the milk quota and the farm animals. It was a very, very black day. Uh, you know, our farm, lovely farm manager and, and nine or ten farm workers lost their jobs. You know, these were guys we'd been working with for years. It was terrible. But we knew we had to do it. We just couldn't go on. Um, but just around that time, we met an amazing Dutch ecologist called Franz Vera. And he's, his work, uh, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, had just been published in English in the year 2000, just as we were hitting the buffers. And his ideas really intrigued us, especially as we were looking at doing something with the land, perhaps conserving for nature in some way. But his ideas were particularly exciting because what he was saying was that in all our imaginings of how uh, temperate zone Europe before human impact would have looked, we've forgotten about all the herds of free-roaming animals that would have been here. We've forgotten about the aurochs, the tarpan, um, the elk, the bison, the wild boar, reindeer. We've forgotten about um, beavers by the million. All these herbivores would have been here in huge numbers. And they would have been driving the habitat. They would have been 
creating a sort of mixture of vegetation, opening up the landscape, keeping it open. So it would not have been closed canopy, ubiquitous closed canopy woodland, like we kind of sometimes have in our heads, the, mm. the kind of landscape of, of um, uh, Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel. It wasn't like that. It would have been much more open, much more diverse, much more dynamic, much more like somewhere like the Serengeti or even the, uh, the Great Plains of America before the bison were decimated. So what Franz is saying is that if you want to recover some biodiversity, these catastrophic losses we've been seeing over the last 50 years, a way to do that is to reintroduce these free-roaming herbivores. And the key is to just sit back and let them do the managing for you. So take as little management as you can, um, allow nature to take over the driving seat, and extraordinary things begin to happen. So, so that's had, where we made our decision to do something like that. So you had this large estate and the farming element had gone. You hadn't got the home farm, you weren't, you know, the cattle and everything had gone. Even though I think you tried ice cream and everything at one point. We did. You really worked hard at it, didn't you? Um, and, and you said, I've got, we've got this space, we'll, we'll just open it up and let have some free range. Now, that's quite a bold thing to do, isn't it? Because presumably one of the drivers for you was a financial driver. Um, and a need to make a living, and introducing herds of cattle and then letting them graze free range, that's no guarantee of return in terms of financial return or even in terms of where you take the, 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 um, the management of the land. So that was actually a very bold step. Well, in financial terms, it wasn't <clears throat> that, that bold step because um, we were already, we were still getting basic farm payment as it was then, um, and so we were still being paid for for having been farmers, um, basic payment is going to go with subsidies. Um, we know that, and so it should. But we're still receiving that. Uh, we were also, um, eventually, we, we, we got countryside stewardship scheme money, funding, to restore the park around the house. So we didn't put all the 3,500 acres in one go into this rewilding project. We weren't that brave. Um <laughs> We started in increments, and really the epiphany was the restoration of the Repton Park around the house, because we had the funding for that. It was only um, 350 acres or so, but it was right, you know, outside our windows. And that first summer after we had reseeded the park and we had let the land go, um, and we heard this incredible humming, buzzing, thrumming sound of insects and we realised what we'd been missing all these years and then in came birds following the insects and then we introduced fallow deer to, to keep it grazed so you suddenly had this wild element and we felt like we were sitting in, in the middle of the Serengeti I mean it was a complete <laughs> revelation and it's that feeling that I think we knew we were onto something really positive and something really exciting it felt like the land was just breathing a sigh of relief and that we could roll this out then um, around the entire estate. So then we looked for HLS, for, for higher level stewardship funding, um, which enabled us to do that. It enabled us to build the fencing, the, the ring fencing around the whole estate so that we, we could introduce these free roaming animals, including fallow and red deer. So... In a way, we were already quids in, mm. um, but it's a very unstable place to be. I don't think any farmer or landowner likes to be in a position where they are reliant solely on, on subsidies. 
And particularly now, we know what's going to happen. But we thought subsidies would go way sooner than they have. They're completely mad. Um, so we have been planning for that. So we now have, you know, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but we now have income streams coming from our post-agricultural buildings, which we now um, have, with a bit of capital outlay, we have now developed into space for light industrial use, storage, um, offices with um, uh, fast broadband. And there's a lot of call for that um, mm. in the southeast. So those agricultural buildings that only previously under farm management were costing us to keep the roof on are now providing a really positive income stream. And that will just carry on increasing as we develop more and more of them. And supporting small businesses, presumably. And supporting small businesses. We now have over 200 people being employed in those buildings, not directly by us, but by the businesses that are renting them. So you're seeing jobs back in a rural um, economy, which is hugely important. Yeah, very. Well, we're looking out of the window of your of your net castle. It's extremely beautiful. And I can see the park through the window. But it, it's quite a... I mean, it, you know, Repton had a formal style, with a relatively formal style, with terracing and, 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 and planting and structures up to the house and things. So it's quite a managed landscape that we can see just through the window here, isn't it? I mean, it's, as we drove up, there were deer on the road and things. But in the sense that it's not really wild... Unlike other parts of the estate where you, you walk out and it feels much, much wilder, doesn't it, with the scrub and, and the free-roaming herd. So there's a difference between what you've done just here, your first experiment, and, and the rest of the estate. Talk to us a little bit about further afield. So if we were going to, to NEP mm. proper, as it were, um, as a member of the public and perhaps having a chance to go on a safari, what would it feel like? For people, what is it that they would be experiencing? It's a completely different um, habitat down there. You're absolutely right. It feels a lot of people when they see it, they have no um, comparison in the UK because it's that kind of habitat is so rare now. So they often we have people saying, "Gosh, it feels just like Africa. It looks like the African bush. It's very, it's thorny scrub. Um, you've got groves of trees emerging, but you've got grazing lawns. You've got." Um, shallow ponds where the animals come to drink it is it feels very dynamic and so many people say you know I gosh I expect to see a leopard up a tree or suddenly <laughs> see a giraffe popping up it's that kind of vibrancy it has and really that happened completely by accident because it took us a while to find the funding to fence that area down there um, we call it the southern block because it's it's um it's separated by um, a small b road from the park and the and the, the, the rest of the estate in the south. So um, we, 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 when we decided to stop farming, we just took the fields out of arable or whatever it was, just left them after their last harvest. It wasn't, we didn't even, because we hadn't got funding for that area, we, it wasn't even worth us reseeding with native grasses or native wildflowers like we had done in the park. We didn't have the money, we just didn't know what to do with it. We just basically let it go after its last harvest. We took the, the worst fields out first and left the best producing fields, which is not saying much, they were still not very productive, um, out last. So there was a kind of graded mm. withdrawal of control there. And then we just were scratching our heads what to do about it. And we were trying to apply for HLS and kept trying and kept trying. So there was about a six or seven year hiatus 
while we were waiting to find funding for the ring fence around that area that would allow us to introduce these free-roaming animals. And in the meantime, scrub had begun to develop. And you've got really interesting areas. Some, some fields, we don't know why, have hardly moved at all. Presumably that's because there's a history there that's different to the neighbouring field where you're already seeing thorny scrub bouncing up. It may be that there's a history of a different pesticide, different fertiliser um, regime on that land. It may that be that its last crop was different or even the weather conditions when that particular field came out of agriculture. So maybe it was too wet for um, a lot of different seeds to germinate. Maybe it was too dry. Maybe it wasn't a mast year for sallow or it wasn't a mast year for, for acorns so you haven't got little oaks coming up. So actually what happened completely by accident is that we got this very different mosaic of habitats emerging in vegetation terms in that area. And then finally, about eight years in, we got HLS funding. And hooray, finally, we could relax and we knew what we could do with this land. We ring-fenced it and then we reintroduced the, these grazing animals in very low numbers to begin with. Um, Exmoor ponies, which are kind of like a... Um, an old um, horse, so they're kind of our proxy of the tarpan. Mm-hmm. Old English longhorn cattle who are behaving like an aurochs would have in the in the landscapes of the past. Red deer came last, actually. We put in fallow deer and pigs to be a proxy for the wild boar because you can't release them um, into the landscape. It's illegal to do so under the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. But if boar find their way onto your land, then that's fine. So we're crossing our fingers that some great, fantastic boar will be attracted by our, our tamworths and break through the boundary fence. So there we have these, these free-roaming animals, again, in a landscape which has already been able to scrub up. So you've got a much more even battle between vegetation succession and animal disturbance. It's not like this game-over parkland that you've got around the house. Mm where you put animals in, they just continue to graze it. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting grassland because we've got amazing numbers of dung beetles there. It's where you see our ravens, our peregrine falcons are up in this area. We've got red kites, bats, lots of interesting stuff. But it just doesn't feel... So it feels it, more manicured, doesn't it? It, it feels, feels more, a little bit more manicured. Yeah. But down in the southern block, you can lose yourself within you know 20 minutes. You don't know which way you're going because... It is now you're following animal, animal tracks through through this very vibrant, very um, dynamic scrub. And you've talked quite a bit about subsidies. I mean, obviously, to make this work, um, you know, you needed financial support. Um, and we've heard some hopefully encouraging noises from the Secretary of State around the new Environment Bill and the idea that there might be reward for farmers for farming for good in terms of wildlife and the landscape. Um, but how would you counter an argument where someone said, well, we paid you subsidies because you were producing something we could eat, you were producing food, albeit perhaps not as much as you'd like. Now we're paying you to have Tamworths roam free so people can go and take pictures of them. I mean, is there an argument in there to say that actually that is an inappropriate use of subsidy to support something like a rewilding or bringing back to nature? Well, I think the kind of subsidy we're getting and for what we do is going to be the future. I think that... The, the sort of single, you know, focus on land producing food, as we've seen, doesn't work because it, it ends up going down a route of non-sustainability, unsustainability. 
I think we're going to have to think of land use in a completely different way because it's not just food um, that it can produce. And we are still producing food because we cull our animals. We don't have predators in the southeast of England. Yet, maybe in 100 years' time, we could have a lynx or a wolf. But Yes, bring back the lynx. <laughs> but at the moment, um, we don't have predators. So we cull the number of animals because we need to keep the numbers very low in order to have this dynamic landscape for biodiversity. So what I would argue is that the, the, the money that we're receiving, the um, high-level stewardship money, the agro-environment money, is for, A, producing um, the most ethical meat you can buy. It's free-roaming, they live in naturalistic herds, they live outside all year round, no antibiotics, no avermectins, um, they are organic, um, they are, to all intents and purposes, as wild as you can get without being you know, in Yellowstone National Park. <laughs> so we're producing 70 tonnes of meat off this project that is, I believe, the most ethical you can buy. But we're also doing other things that are vitally important for the public good. Um, there's an awful phrase being banded around called e- ecosystem services, but for want we of We don't any, think it's awful. <laughs> we love it of, on the pod. For want of any other word, that is what we, we are providing. So... Just in terms of water sources, we know that the water um, draining into NEP is coming off farmland. It's heavy with nitrates. We've, we know that it's coming off the roads. It's coming from um, towns and villages. So it's, it's polluted water that's coming onto our land. Uh, two years ago, we did water sampling on all our standing water and in our streams on our land. And it was the highest p- possible quality. So that's showing that the land is acting as a kind of filter it's cleaning the water for us. So the knock-on effect of that is it's saving the taxpayer huge bills that the water companies have to have to ask us to pay because they have to clean the water of nitrates in order to get it back into the, into the um, drinking water system. Um, we're mitigating against floods. We'd love to do a lot more research on this. We've got a, a, uh, a flood meter table down by the um, A24, but... It, we haven't. The water board hasn't, and um, the environment agency rather hasn't analysed the data from it yet. But we know anecdotally that wo- that uh, bridges and uh, B roads and cottages downstream from us that always used to flood in heavy rains haven't flooded since this project began. So again, we're acting like a sponge, holding back the floodwaters, and again, that is saving the taxpayer huge amounts of money further downstream in the kind of destruction of infrastructure and homes. And we've got carbon sequestration. And There's carbon sequestration is another huge thing. I mean, it's a huge thing, that, because... And I think that's really underestimated how grazing animals in a pasture system like this have the huge potential for carbon sequestration. It's a complicated system that we can't kind of go into here, but it is, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and... Perhaps the most important, well, there's, there's obviously um, enjoyment of, of, of somewhere like this because we are providing a, a space for, for nature, a wild place mm. that people can go and enjoy themselves. And we're only just beginning to realise how, how, how important wild places are in terms of um, health, physical and mental health on people. So that sense of us reconnecting with our natural environment, isn't it? And the rewilding projects that we visited for the pod have all given people that chance to just step back, step out and 
perhaps reconnect. And, and, and what's really fascinating for me about the rewilding debate is not that it, we're not going back to something that we had in the past. What we're doing is we're trying to reimagine the landscape in a different way and allow nature to come through in its own way. So what we have in, you know, at NEP and in other places won't be the way it was 500 years ago, but it'll be our version of that and a wild space that people can enjoy. Um, how important are the kind of the safaris and the, the ecotourism, if I can call it that, as part of the kind of overall balance of what's going on here? Well, for us, it's another income stream um, that means that we can, we can be secure if um, all farming subsidies go. I mean, at the moment, the government is giving um, uh, nice kind of suggestions, a, good, a feel-good kind of vibe that um, there will be payments for people like us and for farmers who um, are restoring their soils and doing all these other ecosystem services. There will be recognition for that. But it may not be in the form that it has been before. It may not be so high. And we know there are huge demands on government money and that may go towards the NHS. So we feel very nervous about being reliant on subsidies, as I mentioned before. So for us, the ecotourism, um, it's it's a really important income stream. Um, This is only its uh, fifth proper year, I think. And we do safaris and we have glamping and camping we've got tree houses now and we've got a little farm shop that ecotourism business apart from employing now about three full-time people and about seven or eight part-time ecologists and 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 cooks and cleaners um that brings in um will bring in this year in excess of three hundred thousand, and we hope we'll make a 20 percent profit on that so it's a really significant um income stream for us Mm. So that and the meat um, and the agricultural buildings, we think, will make us sustainable for the future. Mm. And that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about building in sustainability for, for, for NEP and for this way of, this way of running um, a farm and a landscape that hopefully will encourage others to, um, to follow your example. I mean, have there been any real... Um, has there been opposition? Have you had any um, particular detractors who said, you're crazy, you shouldn't do this, you know, you've got all these wild creatures, they're in danger of, you know, getting through and getting onto my land, or, you know, I really don't want... I mean, you know, maybe not everybody loves the storks. I have to say the storks were spectacular. But, um, you know, have you encountered opposition and barriers and challenges? We have, and in, in the beginning it, it really was. I mean, you know, just writing writing my book, it was quite interesting going back we're now whatever it is 17 18 years into the project so going back and having to remember the early history the early days of the moments of epiphany but also the moments of opposition it was really quite quite it was quite alarming the amount of opposition we got um a, a lot from neighbors um and i can see it i can i can see how how worried people would have been in the early days because you're you're living on our boundary say and you know, there on the other side of the fence, you've been looking across very managed, orderly fields for the whole time you've been living there, and suddenly it's turning into this rampaging, sort of triffid-like mess of ragwort and docks and creeping thistle. And you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? You know, this is not how England is supposed to look. So I think it was largely one of aesthetics to begin with, the, the, the criticism we got that it's not how England should look. It's not our green and pleasant land, our orderly landscape. Um, I think there was also um, a lot of um, criticism about 
um, not producing food, that we were mm. being lazy or irresponsible. Um, at worst, we were being unpatriotic. You know, there was still that leftover feeling that, from that dig for victory sense, that every single inch of the land should be should be under agriculture. Because quite a lot of the part was the, the the home park was dug up for, for food all production, of it, wasn't it? Yeah, all I mean, of it, including in book. yeah, including yeah. the Repton Park. Yeah. Every single inch, yeah. water meadows that had never been ploughed. The Repton Park had never been ploughed. Mm. Mm. Big oak trees came down. Hundreds and hundreds of oak trees were were sawn down for the for the war effort. That was a time of crisis, mm. um, and and so it should have been. I mean, we, we were on the verge of starvation, and in fact, we were on the verge of starvation for seven years afterwards, mm. um, after the war ended. But that mentality has stayed with us, and the reality is we're producing much more food off much smaller areas than ever before. Um, globally, we feed um, over 11 billion people, and we are now a global population of 7.5 billion. We waste 40% of that. So the argument that was always levelled against us and saying, no, you should be growing food, we would say, well, actually, we currently are growing as a planet enough food to feed ourselves, but we have to address that waste issue first. Yeah. And the second thing is we need to make space for nature because um, the other criticism, I think, is just that rewilding is seen as this kind of rampant creature that will take over all our landscape. Um, and so it can be, be overrun with walls and bison. <laughs> yes, and, exactly. Know, it won't be safe to go outside. That's not the intention at all. Um, most of our land will always be needed for, for growing food. We just have to think intelligently about where that is and do it sustainably. And rewilding can actually be farming's greatest ally in making farming sustainable. Um, a couple of years ago, the NFU, the National Farmers Union, brought out a paper saying that we have fewer than 100 harvests left in the UK before there's no topsoil left in which to grow anything. I mean, that is profoundly shocking, and some people actually say it's more likely to be closer to 50 or 60 harvests left. Yes, I've heard that, yes. So we're facing a real, you know, cliff edge but what we've seen at NEP in just a matter of 17 years is our soils have restored. We were a biological desert in terms of soil when we started rewilding. But now we have 19 different species of earthworm. We have Charlie, who's a complete insect um, nut, once lay by a, a cow pat and counted 23 different species of dung beetle in one cow pat. Those are bringing down the the, the, the the organic matter from the cow pat into the earth. They're, they're keystone species. Mm. We've got one dung beetle that hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years, the violet door beetle. Don't ask me how it found us, but it's now here in numbers doing mm. that really crucial job of, of bringing the, the organic matter back into the soil. We've got orchids popping up in the middle of our fields, and that shows us that our mycorrhizal networks are beginning to spread underground again because orchids depend on mycorrhizal sustenance in order mm. to survive. So all these indicators are that our soil is now returning to good heart. In this really hot summer that we had, in, in days of farming, we'd have cracks in our soil, in our ground, that you could fit your arm in up to your, up to your shoulder. We didn't have any of that yet this year. But you go onto our neighbour's land, still farming, and they had those gigantic cracks everywhere. Mm. We've got soil now that is 
so full of microbes and all the, the, the fungal systems that it can hold on to water in times of drought. So what you can do, and this is a really exciting um, idea, I think, and this wonderful guy at Natural England came up with the, with the, with the catchphrase, pop-up NEPs. But what you could do is you could rewild an area like NEP for a generation, so say 15 or 20 years, and then return it to agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Once your stores, soils are restored, your water's been um, purified again, you've got some interesting species back, you can then go in with those toppers, those huge machines that you see the Forestry Commission use. They can go in, we've done it with a field outside the project. You can go through acres in just you know a few hours return it to a workable tilth and that can go back into agriculture. So it's really that old-fashioned crop rotation, lying fallow, yeah. putting back the nutrients into Absolutely. the soil that we've Absolutely. completely lost we've sight completely of. We've completely lost sight of that rotational system. Yeah. And so obviously you would do this in a way that um, an area nearby would be coming, scrubbing up and turning into a rewilding project as, you, as this area was coming out. So that on a rotational system, your turtle doves, your nightingales, your purple emperors always have habitat to go to. Mm. And it is, as you say, it's just like um, the old system of um, uh, having a rotational um, arable crops and then every six years or so you would, you would allow that land to lie fallow for a few years, graze it, allow the dung, the urine to go back onto the soil... And then you start again. But this would be on a much bigger scale and on a much longer time frame. And then you'd get even more biodiversity being able to take advantage of it. Pop-up nets. Pop-up nets. wonderful, wonderful <laughs> note to end on. Isabella, thank you so much. I recommend your beautiful book, Wilding, to everyone, available in good bookshops. Please buy it in a bookshop. For listeners, it's much more sustainable. We need to support bookshops. Um, thank you for, for giving us an insight. Great to meet you. Lovely to talk about it. You've been listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Join us again next time.